Unlike us, Paul lived with that uncertainty for 14 years, not the five months and plus that we've been living with it. And this is the question that haunted him. Am I running or have I run my race in vain? Uh, running the race, is a, it's, it's a figure of speech for life. Am I, am I living my life, doing what I'm doing in vain, or is it serving a purpose? So that uncertainty with Paul really reminded me of ours. You know, over the past five months, are we doing this in vain, or are we making any progress? Uh, when will this end? Fortunately, with our uncertainties, there is a solution we learned from Paul, uh, we can seek God with our questions. Just like Susan said, he's seeking us. When we get lost, he's after us. So he wants to spend time with us. So direct questions to him. He wants to answer. We, we can seek those that are making us disciples and ask the same questions. There are leaders that are around us. They want to hear from us. So seek them and ask questions. We can stay on task and continue to announce the good news of this slow kingdom that is coming. There are, there are promises that Jesus has made concerning his rule and his reign. And um, he's not going to forget those. But it's slow in coming. But we still can tell people this good news. We can also remember the poor. The poor right now, uh, those that are really in need, are, they're desperately calling out for God. And so if we take an active concern for the poor, we end up positioning ourselves with people that are looking for answers to their prayers. And some of the things we bring are, are that, answers to our prayers. So thanks to Molly, we've got a suggestion for remembering the poor in our city. So you can find that on our River City Vineyard Facebook page. It's a way for us to help the poor in our city. So we're living with uncertainty, but then that, that uncertainty can have moments of relief. We can do something about it. And that's what happened with Paul and Barnabas and Titus. They left Jerusalem. They went back to Antioch. They were relieved of their uncertainty. Having told their story to the apostles in Jerusalem, their ministry to the Gentiles was recognized. They were assured of partnership with the Jerusalem church. Peter and the other Jewish background followers of Jesus would continue their ministry with the Jews, and Paul and his team would serve the Gentiles. The good news of the kingdom would be announced to both the Jew and the Gentile, the whole world in that sense. All would be invited to follow Jesus by faith. Gentiles would not be required to receive circumcision. Faith in Jesus was all that was needed for the journey of salvation to begin. After Paul and Barnabas and Titus arrived back at Antioch, Peter came for a visit. I'm thinking that after hearing Paul's stories, uh, he wanted to see firsthand what God was doing in Antioch. So Peter came, and he mixed and mingled with Jew and Gentile in the church at Antioch. He freely lived out what God showed him years earlier, concerning a visit to Cornelius, a Gentile. Peter was free to fellowship with the Gentiles. He was free to share at the dinner table. And then suddenly, Peter drew back. 
He stopped mixing and mingling with the Gentiles. He stopped sharing the table. Fear overcame his freedom. He separated himself. And sadly, other Jewish background believers joined him. And before long, the church in Antioch was split right down the middle. Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other side, both following Jesus, but separate. Even Barnabas, one who traveled with Paul to Jerusalem, joined in this schism. What happened? What has the power to divide a healthy and growing church? How could the assurances that Paul received from the Jerusalem apostles suddenly like evaporate into thin air? Well, listen to the story and see if you can begin to answer questions like those. Later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain people came from James, which would be Jerusalem, Peter regularly ate with the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish Gentile friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that had been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in Antioch joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept along in the charade. And when I saw what they were doing and not maintaining the steady, straight course according to the message, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, Peter, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies. Peter, unfortunately, was not the only visitor to Antioch. Soon after his arrival, a group of conservative Jewish believers arrived. They were Judaizers. Judaizers were Christians who taught it was necessary to adopt Jewish custom and practice, especially found in the Law of Moses, to be saved. In particular, they demanded that the Gentiles practice circumcision by professing faith in Jesus and then being circumcised. These Judaizers are called watchdogs. They were in Antioch for only one purpose, to, to make sure the church in Antioch complied with their demands. They were an intimidating group Even the Apostle Peter was fearful of this conservative Jewish clique. Now think about that. Think about what you know about Peter. And he was fearful of this conservative Jewish clique. They were persuasive. These Jewish believers, including Barnabas, were led astray by their hypocritical charade. And they split. The beauty of this multicultural church in Antioch was was split right down the middle. 
It's like what, you know, what God had done, what God had joined together, they, did, they blew it apart. Now, it would be much more comfortable for me just to, let's, let's just keep that story in the past. Uh, but I'd be doing a disservice to our community not to ask if we're vulnerable of similar forces today. And if so, what are those forces and what can we do about it? For at least 50 years, traditional values and attitudes in mainstream American culture have been questioned. Some would say that the Judeo-Christian consensus is something of the past and it's been replaced by a secular consensus. This is an observation from one who has lived through these 50 years of questions and change. And I can say without a doubt there has been a rise of a more vocal, reactionary, conservative Christian voice in both politics and the church. A simple definition of conservatism is aiming to preserve. Many are aiming to preserve traditional values and attitudes. A reactionary is a person or a group that favors a return to a previous state of society that they believe possess positive characteristics that are now absent in contemporary society. So a more vocal, reactionary, conservative Christian group has been at work to preserve our traditional values and attitudes, hoping to return our culture to a previous time that they believe possessed more positive characteristics than contemporary society. Now you might ask, well, okay, but what do those reactionary, conservative Christian voices have to do with Judaizers? What do they have in common? And that's a good question. And we should talk about it. And we're going to. For one, the Judaizers were both conservative and reactionary. They aimed to preserve the traditional values and attitudes of attitudes. The means, this is super important. The way to do that, the means to preserve traditional values and attitudes of Judaism for the Judaizers was to preserve the past with law. Preserve the past with law. Gentiles could not be possibly be saved by faith in Jesus only. According to the Judaizers, they, they must do the law. They must be circumcised. That's true, that's true tradition. We've got to preserve that tradition, and we preserve tradition by law. Conservative reactionary groups today are relying on the same means. We must overturn past law and replace it with new law. These laws will set us straight with God. Until the law is changed, we fall short of God's favor. We must do law. We must preserve tradition by law. Placing faith in law 
to preserve our past traditions or return us to some golden age, whether that law be the Torah or the Constitution of the United States, is what Paul would call clearly out of line. It's not the same as placing faith in Jesus alone. When we begin to add anything to faith in Jesus alone, we begin to slip away from the steady, straight course of the gospel of truth. Paul is arguing with Peter, we must maintain a steady, straight course of the gospel of truth, which is faith in Jesus alone. You you cannot add law to that. So the situation as I see it, when you look at the means of what's going on, the dynamics of the day, I I think it's exactly the same. So then what, what should we do? What do we do? If we want to maintain the steady, straight course of the gospel of truth, what do we do? Well, the first suggestion is not going to make you comfortable. We we cannot avoid confrontation. Paul had a face-to-face confrontation with Peter. Paul spoke up to Peter in front of all the church and its visitors. Susan made the comment of, Oh, maybe that wasn't very wise for for Paul to do that. But I'm sure that Paul tried to do it in private first, and Peter didn't listen, so he, he made it public. Paul didn't retreat in fear. This was too important. He had to speak up. My friends, we cannot retreat in fear. This is too important. We need to speak up. Now... Part of the confrontation may be with ourselves. Because over these 50 years, there have been disciple makers. People uh, trying to understand what does it mean to make a disciple of Jesus today. And one of the things that's been sown into our lives is a reliance upon faith and law rather than faith alone. So there may be within ourselves. There may be within us. We've been taught that faith and law are sort of equal, but they're not. We also may need to confront a family member. Um, We may not be at the same place, and then maybe this makes us even more uncomfortable. We may need to confront church family members. We're in a a community where we may not all be on the same page right now concerning faith and law. Several years ago, A few of us visited a synagogue in Austin. Uh, We didn't didn't have to hide that we were followers of Jesus. We were welcome as Christians, and we met with Jews to talk about the division that existed between Israel and Palestine. These were Jews who were coming to the conclusion that a two-state solution would be better than the position of a greater Israel And as they shared their thoughts, they talked about an intimidating voice. They said that that voice had silenced them for years. They they had a growing concern about the treatment of Palestinians under Israeli occupation, but they were afraid of the voice, so they kept their views quiet. When we met, they had finally decided to speak up 
to say no to the intimidating voice. They decided not to fear. Oh, I believe there's a similar intimidating voice in the church today. And it's that loud, conservative, reactionary voice pushing the church toward unholy alliances in hopes of salvation by elections, salvation by Supreme Court appointments, salvation by change in laws. And I believe it's a time to say no to that voice. And it's because of this. We must maintain the steady, straight course of the gospel of truth. We must advance, advance, not retreat in the direction of the truth. We are following Jesus who is leading us forward toward his kingdom. He's not leading us back to some perceived golden age when the law kept us in line. Jesus fulfilled the law so that we could enter into a new covenant with God. The new covenant rests on the work of Jesus and death and resurrection, not on the work of a religious nation. Having completed the work, we are asked to trust in what Jesus has done for all of humanity and then to follow him as he makes people new from the inside out. He transforms people by the power of his resurrected life, not by law. Finally, having faith in law doesn't work. It only produces hypocrisy. As Paul said to Peter, if you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew, a Gentile, when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? Making a favorable impression on old Jewish cronies by requiring Gentiles to conform to the Jewish law of circumcision is not the same as making a favorable impression on God by expressing faith in Jesus Christ regardless of who the watchdogs are. Let me say it this way. If I, a Christian, live like a non-Christian when I'm not being observed by the reactionary conservative watchdogs, what right do I have to require non-Christians to conform to Christian customs just to make a favorable impression on my old reactionary conservative cronies? You see, when I or you or Peter seek to make an impression on anyone other than God by what we do or don't do, we begin to slide into a life of hypocrisy. I live one way with some folks and another way with other folks. And I can put on a good act for those who demand that I live by their rules and live an entirely different way than when I'm not with them. I can too easily begin to live a double life. May Jesus, may faith in Jesus alone save us from this hypocrisy. Let's take a moment and invite the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts. We need to see 
what path we are following. We need to make sure that we are step by step on the steady, straight course of the gospel of truth. Come, Holy Spirit. Express your ministry among us. Make these words alive. Cut us to the quick. Help us to answer in your presence these questions. As we live in these trying days, as we see change, who are we trying to impress? Who are we afraid of? Who are we trying to reach with the good news of the kingdom? What direction are we headed? Are we going backward? Are we going forward? Who or what are we trusting in for salvation? Whether that salvation be individual or national or global, who or what are we trusting for salvation? Is our trust in law or is our trust in Jesus? Holy Spirit, guide us this week. Keep our eyes open. Keep our mind alert. Answer these questions. Raise other questions. Keep this community, make it maybe, maybe just keep the church. On course with the gospel of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So my friends, I trust that you will reread that passage. And if you need to, read, you know, kind of listen again to some of these thoughts. I sure welcome any of your questions, we can have a conversation about what was shared today as well. I know it's a challenge. So we come to the time of farewell, and so I want to invite everyone...